I'm Joseph Lamena, Managing Director at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Rodrigo Gordillo from Resolve Asset Management Global. Our special guests today are Jason Mann, co-founder, partner, and chief investment officer at Edge Hill Partners and EHP Funds, and Mike Newton, vice president and portfolio manager at the Newton Group at RBC Wealth Management. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Jason, Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Good to see you, Joseph. So to kick things off, for those in our audience who aren't familiar with you, uh, please take turns to introduce yourselves, how and when you started in the investment industry. Tell us about the arc of your career and what you're up to these days. If I'm going to start, Jason, I will. I always like to go first. I guess it was uh, 91 is when I graduated from university, 92, uh, I went right into the business with a small boutique firm in Canada called Midland Walwyn, mm-hmm. uh, uh, worked very hard there, being at a non-bank uh, owned firm was an interesting perspective on how to grow your business. Uh, we were purchased by Merrill Lynch, um, where I you know, learned a lot at Merrill Lynch. Um, and then most of my time when Merrill Lynch left Canada was spent at the individual, uh, sorry, independent dealers, uh, so non-bank owned for those uh, need clarification, and uh, spent eight years at Scotiabank and now I've been at RBC. Uh, uh, today's actually the 11 month anniversary since I made the move over to RBC. Um, I would divide my career into two um, distinct chapters. Chapter one or book one was a asset gatherer, financial planning, servicing clients, and then reallocating my assets to individual portfolio managers. You know, So I'd be allocating money to, to say Jason and his team or in those days, you know, some of the big Canadian portfolio managers. Um, and then about 17 years ago, um, when I met Rodrigo actually in the business, um, I was turning my business around into one where I became the portfolio manager. Um, and at the same time, obviously providing a full range of services for my client base. So for 17 years, I've been doing it my way. And uh, it was scary at first, but it's been uh, very rewarding. So very happy and uh, love what I do and get up at 530 in the morning. And I'm very excited when the day starts. Excellent. Interesting. Very good. And for myself, uh, you know, I'll, I won't go back to the, the very beginning, but I'll, I'll talk about my experience in this uh, in this industry. So I actually started out in this industry at Scotiabank, um, working on the institutional uh, equity desk as a trader uh, and also trading the bank's money, a proprietary trade. Uh, there really aren't any prop desks left anymore after 2008. Uh, and, you know, I always joke that the fastest way to get fired from a bank is to lose the money. We were fortunate that we never did that. We, we never had a down year, including 08, including Lehman. And it was because we were always risk managers first and foremost. So, so we, you know, and then we left and started up our own uh, 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 hedge funds. Now they're called alternative asset managers, which is a much more friendly term. Yeah. Um, and we run quantitative strategies, long and short. So, uh, you know, we're factor-based. We care about things like value, momentum, volatility. 
but you know, ultimately we're, we're, we still have the look and feel of a, of a proprietary um, bank trading floor in the sense that we use multiple strategies uh, to give us a return stream that, that our clients are looking for. But most importantly, we control risk. So we view ourselves as risk managers first and foremost. Our returns are a, a byproduct of that risk control. Um, and ultimately express that in individual stocks and, uh, uh, and soon bonds. Excellent. That's great. So, so, you know, Mike, I've known you since the beginning of my career. I think um, I was a, a year or two in to finance when I moved over to Blackmont Capital, uh, got to meet you. And one of the things that stood out then and I think continues to send out to the day is what you just said, waking up at 5 a.m., having a plan every day and executing on that plan religiously. And, um, and I just would like for you to share a little bit about how your framework is, because you're not just managing portfolio, portfolios right now, picking stocks and managing that risk, but you're also running a business, raising assets, meeting with clients. So tell us how you think about structuring your day in order to create some success for yourself. Well, because, um, Nothing, no day ever, you, you assume every day is going to be one of equilibrium, but it rarely is. So, uh, number one is um, I do divide my, uh, my week up, the seven days up, and I think you know this, uh, Rodrigo, but, you know, I sort of stole from um, uh, a consultant in Toronto uh, by the name, uh, with the strategic coach approach. Um, and his view is you divide your week into focus days, buffer days, and free days. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's really, really important because those phone calls, first of all, when a client phones, it's really important that I'm involved in that. I own that client relationship. Um, we do have people taking care of sort of the smaller inquiries, what have you, but the big stuff I still get very much involved with. And there's still lots of scale in the business for me to, to take on tons more clients. Um, but essentially, um, we're really trying to get the day time block. So the best time for me is, you know, 5.30 to 9.30, I've got the lay of the land figured out uh, until 9.31 when the market starts trading. But we sort of try to get the portfolio management details you know, I've done my research, I've done my reading, I've uh, taken a look at all my different blogs that I get emails for, newsletters I subscribe to. And then on Mondays, uh, we work on the business, meaning, uh, you know, we had our team call at two o'clock today. Uh, we talk about, you know, big things happening. Uh, we talk about things that are, you know, spills and messes here and there. We talk about distractions that are, you know, regulatory things. Um, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, from basically about nine o'clock on, we work in the business, meaning uh, that's when I roll up my sleeves and I'm, I'm on the phone all day. So I'm either talking to clients or I'm talking to referrals or I'm talking to partners or I'm chatting with um, Jason Mann and his team, uh, you know, about various issues. But we work in the business. And then Friday morning, uh, depending on whether it's winter or summer, we uh, we typically it's a it's a work day. And then around twelve to one on Friday, I really like to sit back and just make it up as I go. Hopefully, a free day. But as you know, all of the, all four of us, uh, the blurred lines between work and pleasure and home and personal, uh, you know, it's it's very blurry because 
I'm always consuming what's going on in the market. Um, but really, uh, our meeting process with clients and our review process with clients is very rigid. Um, my assistant of 25 years, she, she books Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, 48 out of 52 weeks with between four and six client touch, uh, you know, touches. Um, and then lastly, you know, why do I get up so early? Uh, it's funny because my parents used to drag me out of bed when I was in grade nine. Um, <laughs> now I can't wait to get out of bed. Um, and I, I, I always think uh, I read the book Range by uh, David Epstein um, when it came Great out. Great book. Love that book. And, and, and I love yeah. the idea of interdisciplinary thinking. Uh, I love the idea of reading other people's um, newsletters, industry newsletters, to see how they think about things and how they solve problems. And you find out that basically everybody has the same. They're trying to reach the same and solve for the same things that humans want. And I can learn a lot from that. And then also I learn a lot from behavioral thinking. I learn a lot from great ideas come into my portfolio. So again, unlike what Jason does, which is very factor driven and there's screens. And when the screens, you know, come down to a small basket, there's a little bit more research done. I, on the other hand, love when an idea triangulates from many different disciplines. And then I say to myself, I'm really in love with this idea. And what I love is the ability to just actually affect a trade on it and put on not just the 1% position, but even maybe as high as a 5% position. Um, and I manage the risk from there. So, you know, that's how I structure my day. It's it's basically working on the business or working in the business. And uh, uh, it's been very disciplined for 10 years. The funny story though, Rodrigo, is I, I've run into clients that run the same thing. So we're always trying to have our, they're always trying to have their meetings with me on Monday, but I'm like, today's not my meeting day. And they're like, well, it's it's my meeting day. So we, uh, we, we sort it out, but anyways, it works really well. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, you being super organized is the key. Being super organized is the key so that when things do pop up, like I found last week kind of stressful um, with, you know, the big turnoff on tech <laughs> and the, you know, continued resurgence of value, you know, it really took hold last week. So, you know, my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was a little busier than I would have otherwise liked um, because I was actually working on the portfolio. So the key is to have an anchor back to some sort of process. Uh, you know, Jason, you probably oh, 100%. had to deal with a lot more chaos when you were at the prop desk as you were constantly responding to whatever was going on in the market. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, in order to be able to make progress, it's, it's not about doing a bunch of small things that keep you busy, but it's about doing a couple of things right that are going to actually move the needle. And as things are thrown at you, you just got to anchor yourself back to your process and get back to it uh, to build a business, to be good at asset management, to manage your risk. So, yeah, that's what I've always saw. What I always saw of you, uh, Mike, is is your ability to always stick to that discipline, even during the summertime, which is where many advisors end up not doing much. So, um, so that's, that's commendable. Now, now, Jason, how do you structure your day? As an asset manager, you're managing risk. You used to be a prop trader. Uh, do you find that you're more reactive because of the market or because of the factor-based investing? Are things more uh, streamlined? Yeah, so if, if we think about, you know, the, the, um, the funds we run, a good 90% of them are uh, what I'll call purely systematic. 
Um, so the, the day-to-day can actually be quite straightforward, right? Really, we're not, we're not picking stocks day-to-day. We're executing a process um, that is a process that we've done research on and implemented months or years ago. Uh, so we're not we're not changing things on the fly. We don't tend to react to uh, markets uh, necessarily, but we want to be in touch with exactly what is driving markets because that informs um, you know what what may come. It informs how we talk to our clients about what we're seeing. Gives us a clue as to how likely certain strategies are to work or not. Uh, and then there's about ten percent of what we do that that actually is a little bit more reactive. All, you know, a strategy like merger arbitrage, for example. Um, so for those that don't know, merger arb is really straightforward. You know, if one company is buying another, um, you, you buy the company being acquired at a slight discount to the eventual price you're going to get. Uh, you, if in a perfect world, you hold it until that deal closes and you earn that little spread. Uh, and you do it across as many names as is practical, trying not to own deals that aren't going to close. Uh, that's the whole trick with, with merger art. Um, so, you know, even though we have a quantitative process for helping us define a merger or a deal that we like or don't like, there's still a, a certain amount that can't be completely modeled. There's still an element of discretion with that. Um, so something, a strategy like that does consume more of our time, usually in the morning, as we're looking at new deals that have been announced. Um, and we might be talking to some some. Uh, sell side desks or some research departments getting, you know, their views on it. Uh, but, you know, even there, we, we are trying to follow a structured approach to picking up the premium that's embedded in buying merger art deals, much like we're trying to on our main strategies to pick up typically behavioral bias. As Mike mentioned, he likes the behavioral side of it. Most of what we do is, is taking advantage of behavioral mispricings, in our opinion, um, and having a structured, consistent process for, um, you know, generating returns based on that. So we, yeah, we, we really try our best to not allow the day-to-day emotional moves of the market to have anything to do with our process. Uh, because our experience is, you know, when do you make the worst decisions on risk? In the heat of the moment. Right. You better have a plan well in advance of that risk happening, uh, like COVID, for example. Uh, you better have an idea, even though a pandemic is going to be seen once every 100 years, mm-hmm. you should still have an idea of what you're going to do when the market acts in a certain way, no matter what's causing that, that action. Um, and that's very much how we approach it. Right. The Mike, I got a question for you. Think what? about all the major opportunities before and after, right? So... You weren't you weren't trying to figure out how you were going to manage risk uh, the day of the day that everything fell off the uh, the wagon in March, but you actually had that idea. You knew exactly what you were going to do when that uh, when COVID did happen. Like we saw it ourselves. I remember we have the option of being discretionary risk managers at any point and taking risk off the table. And every day during March, where we're like, you know what, we got to we got to take this down another thirty percent. This then we do the uh, we'd run the system and the system would take us down 30%, right? So whatever our intuition had us thinking at the time, the systems were there already. And it was fantastic to see it kind of play out, be emotionless. And that's, that's the greatest part about being disciplined, whether you're building a business or being disciplined about and systematic about the way you manage your money. Um, and Mike, I know that you also run your book with 
good risk management, stop losses, and the like. Um, those are again, you know, tell us a little bit about how you how you manage. You got you told us a bit about how you pick your stocks, but how is it that you manage your risk, and has that changed over the years? How are you seeing it today in today's faster moving markets? We, um, you know, it's funny coming back to what happened last week and all, and perhaps all the other stress points that we have is is I I have a. Um, uh, Listen, you can you can categorize your book into the you know the nine different sectors, um, but then I subcategorize it. I have it in uh, also, you know, I have names that I really really don't want to give up, and I'm willing to let them drop 15, 16 percent. So we have them categorized as you know Mike really wants to hold this. Um, then as another example, you know the whole thematic, you know I'll just use a new recent example, but the whole Kathy Wood space. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, it, it's been rewarding for me because I actually own a lot of the stuff that she owned. Um, but I, but I basically killed most of it on February 12th. Um, because I had written down in the side notes, uh, forget about price action and what have you, but I'd also written down the side notes that, okay, these nine stocks, I consider them to be very high on concept, very low on fundamentals. Um, but again, I, I've always thought some of the most magnificent returns can come from um, when there's a pile on, uh, just like there's a when there's a pile off. Um, so, you know, I, I often look at the top holdings of of Kathy Wood, and and, and I'm not afraid to own those top holdings and in size. Um, but I'm also not. I don't want to be the bag holder. So we we categorize our stocks into, uh, besides the nine sectors, we categorize them into things that we think are, you know, we're, we're, they're running on fumes. Um, you know, uh, we've gotten, you know, I owned Zoom, for example, from March, um, obviously a very successful position. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew it, I knew I was getting away with, uh, you know, ridiculous rates returns. So we were just position sizing down on a regular basis, Rodrigo. And then um, you know, we're, so we constantly have what I call, uh, in case of emergency break glass. So we have the, these little, uh, boxes and the whole team knows what they are. So during COVID, uh, I was actually, uh, in front of my computer down in, 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 uh, Turks and Caicos. I couldn't have told you it was sunny outside cause it was cloudy where I was. Uh, and, and I was able to email and phone my team and say, okay, uh, liquidate basket one, liquidate basket two. And we were, we were deleveraging completely out of the market very, very fast. Now you might be surprised I work at a bank, but uh, I built into all my, my investment policy statements, the ability to go from 50 to as high as 80% cash, um, which is very unusual. It's also um, completely contradictory to the way I was trained and taught in this business don't time the market um but guess what we had a boatload of cash to which we could shoot fish in a barrel in uh, the very end of march and through the middle of april um so it worked on both ends and um you know it it it's difficult it it only happens once every decade i hope a pandemic guy as you said jason i hope hope, hope it happens every 
hundred years, but mm-hmm. you know, the, these bigger than 5% drawdowns happen all the time. So I'm not using stop losses on that regard. And a lot of my competitors that are talk about stop losses and I read a lot of these technical people, I mean, they're getting stopped out at minus 3% and stuff like that. I'm not doing that. Yeah, um, they're trading much you know, more. 5% losses you are, are absolutely commonplace. I'm talking about these really big events. And uh, I'll tell you, my work on the COVID and being very decisive in raising cash um, was one of the main reasons that I brought every single one of my clients with me on my move, my career move from Scotia to RBC. People said, I want to stay with somebody that actually does that. Um, And so it's worked for me. Um, I stay flexible in my positions. I, I also stay very humble on my convictions as well at the same time. So it's a balancing act, but, um, I don't like getting stopped out of holdings, but, uh, they've been incredibly good. Uh, the other side of having a stop loss strategy is you're not afraid to actually take a position. So you Mm -hmm. don't have to overanalyze it, overthink it, uh, drill it. You know, you, you beat it to death. Um, what I do is I put a 1%, then a 2%, then a 3%. As it works out, I add more. But if my first 1% doesn't work out, um, you know, you know, and we lose 15% in three days, you know, that's not a huge drag on the overall portfolio. So the, right. the stops help in reality, but they also give me confidence to actually add positions as well, um, which I like. Hey, Mike, I got a question for you. What's it been like for you to for you to onboard new clients without being able to meet them in person? Um, because I had a background um, with television, mm-hmm. a lot of my more recent prospects have been through the television channel. Okay, um, and an echo effect from that. And number two, um, a lot of the new clients have been very, very, um, really highly endorsed referrals. So those have been those have been okay. What's been difficult is where uh, I'm competing with two other entities. And um, unfortunately, listen, my performance is good and it's fine. And, you know, I have quarters where I lag and quarters where I win. But generally, our performance has been excellent. Um, The problem is, is when you can't take people to a leaf game and a steakhouse uh, and they can't really get to know you and meet you in person, um, you're at a bit of a disadvantage, I guess, because then it becomes only numbers. Uh, it becomes only metrics in a lot of cases. And as you know, and as Jason knows and, and, and Rodrigo know, I mean, you have your performance numbers, but it doesn't really outline your, your risk statistics or your, you know, what's happening, the amount of risk you're taking to get that return. So when it becomes just numbers, it's hard to color. It's sort of like a black and white photograph. It's not color. Um, and that's the only difficult, uh, just you're not able Joseph to establish that. trust in the same way, right? It's one of those exactly. half of the yeah. time when you're taking yeah. your clients out, you're, you're taking them out, you get to know them as a person, you get to know their values. You're also having an opportunity to explain what, what your risk management is, how you, how your strategy works in a more deeper way versus once a year reviewing numbers and either you won or you lost and they start losing faith because they don't know you they don't they don't trust you Mm -hmm. so i can imagine how this is a much more difficult thing we got to get everybody vr sets and like meet in a virtual room watch a virtual sport that's the next evolution for me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, you can you can learn a lot about people 
you know, even by what kind of watch they wear or, you know, how they treat the waitress. Yeah. Um, you know, those are little clues, right? Yeah. I, um, yeah. You know, I remember golfing with a client of mine who I thought was shy, reserved, boring. He turned out, it turned out to be one of my best four hours I ever had in my life. And we're, I didn't know him that well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you can do that with a prospect, um, you know, and uh, again, coming back to sort of my thesis, which is I, I'm more of a touchy feely. I like big ideas. I like jumping out of the spreadsheet and into mm -hmm. the world. I'm more of a, more of a painter than an architect, if you follow me. And, yeah. and I think when people can see that side of me um, versus going out with a propeller head engineer, you know, uh, no personality, I, I think I can win in those situations, uh, you know, or conversely, somebody thinks I'm a bit of a jackass. So it all yeah. depends. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, you, you know, not going to leaf games or going to a restaurant and getting to, you know, know the individual. So what has your meeting process been like these days? Are you doing a lot of zoom calls? Like, how are you able to, because, you know, body language says a lot, right? We all know that. And uh, as you mentioned, the way they treat people, uh, a waitress, whatever the case may be. But are you doing a lot of Zoom calls? And what do you, how, how are you benefiting from that? Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's WebEx, Zoom calls, FaceTime, Microsoft Teams, Google Meet. Um, ironically, the only approved platform is WebEx and Zoom. But... Uh, clients don't care. They phone you anyways. They uh, mm -hmm. another another thing that's been interesting, which is also, you know, I shouldn't be saying this on a, a <laughs> on a public <laughs> podcast, but people, you know, it's getting firms need to figure out how the communication channels work because mm -hmm. I don't check Facebook Messenger very often, um, but I get a lot of messages on there that I don't even know are there, and they're yeah. clients, um, and you know, even Instagram, um, WhatsApp. Um, I don't even have a TikTok account, but you know, one of my clients said, "Oh, I sent you something on TikTok." I was like, "What? I'm not even on TikTok. It couldn't have been me." You know, like, wrong, Michael. So it's, just, it's just weird. It's just very weird. So, so, yeah, Jason. How about you? I mean, you're speaking mostly with advisors, I imagine, and trying to get them on on the phone. Um, I guess in your in your end, it's also Zoom calls and uh, and not a lot of FaceTime. Yeah, I mean, we, we're fortunate given that the way we run money gives us a lot of time to actually interact with clients. So, so we actually view our um, marketing and client interaction as a, as a core competency, just as important to us as uh, our ability to invest their money. Um, and you're right that the bulk of our clients are advisors, IROC advisors in, in Canada. Um, and so historically, you know, I, I probably do 300 meetings a year with advisors and a lot of those would be done out of town you know, whether it's in vancouver or montreal or calgary obviously that's all gone um but we haven't really slowed down on the client meetings it's just a different format now and frankly in some ways it's a lot more efficient right i can now yeah. do yeah, sure. um 10 calls in vancouver and do it from right here at the desk uh, right. and and so now have you the found clients it that you've, you've gotten more efficient has sales and marketing become more efficient for your firm? Are you able to get more meetings than you ever have? Or is it, or is it the opposite? I, I wouldn't say more meetings. They just, and the reason I, it, it's, it's not that we couldn't do more meetings if we could get them. 
but it's always difficult. There's only so many advisors who want to meet with a, a PM or a wholesaler or what have you. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm talking new prospects. So we'll take as many meetings as we can <laughs> practically get, but the delivery of those has uh, become far more efficient, right? As opposed to nice. having to travel and, and five hours on the plane and, and three nights in a hotel, mm-hmm. all of the, you know, and ultimately getting 10 meetings out of that day. Um, we can do 10 meetings in half a day now, realistically, yeah. right? Because because sure. it's uh, it's you can do groups and you can do a couple of people together. It's been great from that perspective. So, Jason, what is your so biggest challenge add... this past year? Oh, Sorry. Go I was just going to ask you, what, what was your biggest challenge this past year, Jason? Um, I mean, obviously, COVID was, was uh, uh, a challenge for all sort of investing mm-hmm. strategies. We fared pretty well, given this, given the, I think Rodrigo used the term, the, the, the speed of the markets. Um, I think the reality is that the liquidity plunge was as much driven by uh, options positioning and this liquidity cascade that we that we read about, um, you know, volatility becoming an asset class and then ultimately imploding on itself. So the speed of the market has been a challenge for systematic strategies. And it's been a challenge for um, taking risk off, but also putting it back on. So we, you know, we were taking risk off in February uh, and we were adding risk back in late April. Well, there was a big gap in between there where you could have had some, some pretty juicy returns, but the market just moved too quickly. Um, so, you know, we, we didn't lose money in March, but we didn't capture that April bounce either. Yeah. And, you know, and then we ca- caught it in May. And then the other challenge is that speed of market doesn't just relate to the overall indices. It also is tied to factor rotations or regime rotations. So, you know, if you recall coming out of COVID, somewhat unusually, the stocks that did best were high-priced growth stocks. Mm-hmm. Normally, when you're coming out of a recession, you expect lower quality um, value stocks to do well, junk stocks. Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't happen, right? You had a, a, a rush to high price growth, and it wasn't until you got the vaccine news in November that you finally started to see what I'll call a normal bull market cycle, where the junky, uh, beaten up, stressed balance sheet stocks rally the hardest. Um, but the speed of these changes, if you're a trend follower, the trends were not stable and they were rapid. Um, so that was for sure, uh, you know, a, a real challenge. I would say this year, things have looked a lot more normal in terms of rotation and speed of market. But I don't think that that hidden risk of uh, the options VIX uh, trade, that hidden risk is not gone. So I think we all need to be wary that um, liquidity plunges are more likely than not to stay with us. Uh, and we can take from COVID a, a learning experience as to how to deal with that. Absolutely. So let's chat a little bit about that rotation, right? Because you saw in, in March, like you said, the growth stocks coming out of it. And so if you're a momentum, if you're picking stocks based on momentum filters, you're capturing a lot of that, those growth stocks in, that, in your momentum strategy. But over the last couple of quarters, you've seen that rotation out of growth and into value. And possibly if it continues this way, you're seeing more and more value names becoming momentum stocks. Right. So are, are you seeing that happening right now? And and what does that mean for, you know, value finally being in favor again after 10 years of just getting absolutely decimated? 
that you're absolutely right. That is exactly what's happening. So, you know, for us, we look at momentum plus valuation. And, and for us, valuation is things like price to free cash flow, return on equity. It's more of a quality metric than it is a right. deep, uh, deep value, book value metric. Um, so the, the challenge with a pure growth at any price environment, like we saw coming out of COVID, is that the value piece of the puzzle stops you from buying the Shopify's of the world and the Zooms of the world because they just don't have the cash flow that we're, we're looking for. So they've got great price momentum, but lousy valuation on a, on a quality metric. Um, the, on the flip side, you have coming out of November in the vaccine news, you had the lowest quality value stocks doing well. So the companies that there was a risk of them being bankrupt. Well, we don't want to own those either because they've got really stressed balance sheets and they have been in a downtrend. So the sweet spot is actually what we're seeing right now, um, which is, is when, as you say, the stocks that are becoming market leaders actually have high quality value metrics. So think, you know, auto parts companies or industrials or financials. And that's very much what we've been seeing for the past six months is a rotation in our funds um, out of, let's say, more defensive staples and, and you know, some, some of the growthier stocks into these more reasonably priced value stocks. And, and it's, a, it's, it's always gradual. But the reality is, if you actually look at the forward growth expectations of those industrial stocks or these commodity stocks, their growth is actually going to be higher than what are called growth stocks in the, in the tech industry. Um, so, so the growth is actually in these, these value sectors for the first time in years. Uh, I think the mean reversion has gone, had gone so far out of value and into growth at any price. Um, uh, and the Kathy Wood is a perfect example, Mike, that, that arc, uh, I call it the momentum machine. Um, and, you know, momentum machines work on the way up and then they work as great shorts on the way down because there's a lot of trap dollars in those same momentum stocks that really don't have a fundamental backstop to them. So I think this trade could last more than just a quarter or two. Uh, this, this looks a lot more like an 010203 environment to us, where reasonably priced stocks could, could outperform for a long time. We don't need a recession. We don't need a, a sell-off like a 010203, but you know, more like what we've seen recently, where value is doing just fine, and growth is really struggling under the surface. It's an interesting, yep. this theme of, you know, value, finally value quality with momentum, finally having it stay in the sun. There's also an, a counter narrative to that, which reminds me of the early 2000s about the this time it's different, right? And the narrative is that we're part of the exponential age, that it's no longer, the a lot of these assets and a lot of these investments are no longer mean reverting, that they're no longer good shorts, that, that this is an age of technology and future growth out like a Tesla out, you know, decades that, that investors actually see that three, four decade long vision and will, and are willing to invest in it consistently. And so, I mean, Mike, you talked a little bit about Kathy Wood and her strategies and that you are not opposed to that type of framework. Um, you're out now. I don't know if you're out now, but you got out. Is it, are you willing to get to, to buy into that exponential age? you know, to the moon, all the tech stocks, plus the Bitcoin stocks, plus the crypto and riding that out if it plays out that way? Um, well, let me. So 
I had, uh, you know, my, my, I run four portfolios and one of them is aggressive and it had a superb year last year. And, uh, and I knew why it had a superb year and I know why, um, some of the folks at Fidelity, you know, Fidelity Insights, Dynamic Power, American Growth, you know, uh, Noah Blackstein, Mark Schmiel, all those guys. So, you know, I was sort of in that group. Um, and as we all know, when you're, um, I guess I'm a stock picker, uh, but we all know that you're only as good as your last trade as the old saying. So what I, you know, you could have looked at all four of those and predicted at the end of the first quarter, 2021, they'd all be, be either plus five or minus 20. Um, you knew they wouldn't be plus five or plus 25. Um, right. So always in the back of my mind is, is I hate the term bag holder. So I didn't want to be the bag holder. Now, having said that, um, this value uh, conversation, uh, I've seen the charts where they show the ratio of growth to value or the, the, the S&P 500 to the commodity complex. And it's never been more stretched, like at the end of say at Christmas, it's never been more stretched. But I looked at those charts, I don't know, every three months for the better part of six or seven years. And it, it never actually came to fruition. It just got mm. worse. And so one half of me has to be a believer and the other half of me has to be a skeptic. And it's a, it's a weird thing to counterbalance in my mind. So um, like I said, on the first crack in the, uh, in the, in the armor of, the, of what Jim Cramer called the Woodstocks, the Kathy Woodstocks, he calls them Woodstocks, um, we were very quick to, to pull the trigger. Um, and, what, and we completely exited. Whereas something like Shopify, which kept growing to 5% of my portfolios, I just kept trimming it back to three and a half. I think, that, I think I did that about four times. Finally, it wasn't going anywhere. It was losing its sort of momentum, as they say. So I just said, okay, I'll just leave it be for a little while. Um, and it, you know, it comes back to this, you know, this framework. I think, and no, no disrespect to anybody on this call, but we, we're steeped in this narrative about value and growth, and we assign these metrics to these things. And I think, Jason, you alluded to the end of your conversation that there is growth in these value names, and there, there is momentum inside these value names. So there's a different, I think most people get confused with value being a, a banal, boring company that just can't really get its act together. And we can, we can all point to a bunch of those. But you know, look at Deer, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, ag company. Um, some would argue it's an agricultural technology company now. Um, so I was very, very early to the Deer rotation uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. It not only fit my reopening theme, but it also fit the sort of value theme. And then lastly, it ticked off my exponential growth technology cloud theme with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Like it's, it's a classic industrial company filled with all that Kathy Wood stuff. Yeah. So you got to find that stuff too. Um, you know, and you know, in Canada, you're always in trouble if you don't have a 30% allocation to banks. Well, for five years, I was 3% yeah. allocation to banks, 3%. But guess what? On February 12th, I went from 3% to 19%. That's where I put my money. And I, you know, I don't have the sophisticated models that Jason might have, but I do have a screen that has the nine sectors and I just, I look at the trend, the momentum, where's the money going? 
And the mistake I don't want to make this time around is if value really comes into focus, um, how long will it be lived? If this economy cools down, um, growth will start doing really well again. And these value names that everybody's running into, they're going to get destroyed again. Um, look at lumber. You know, you know you're in trouble when your 93-year-old grandmother is over for Mother's Day and she's talking to you how much a fence costs. Um, <laughs> lumber's dropped 24% in six days since Mother's Day. So uh, make sure you have companies that just have massive cash flywheels and uh, you're going to do pretty good. I think you're going to do really well. And then add your risk measurement to it as well. And by the way, I, I, I have money with Jason um, because I think they're excellent at what they do and they're a great I think it's uh, a great weather uh, portfolio for me. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great compliment because I think, look, there's two sides of what we're discussing, yeah. right? Number one, you what Jason and Resolve does is we've looked at data going back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, if not longer to identify that behavior, the series of behavioral flaws and a series of accounting realities that we can take advantage of in order to be able to harvest what is generally correct, right? And so that is backward looking and expecting a certain type of behavioral, maybe risk pattern to emerge. And over time that does emerge and it is backward looking for sure. Um, what's a great compliment to that is somebody that is looking at what is likely to happen in the future. What's different this time? How do I adjust to this value um, uh, growth ratio that's, that doesn't seem to react in the same way as in the past? So th there's certainly a fantastic combination that you could find between those two methodologies, right? So for sure, um, Jason should add value and I'm sure it's somewhat correlated to what you're doing. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would. Um, so, I, I would agree with that. Look, I would love to be better at, at managing growth in our in our models. And it's, growth is a, very, a really tough one to get because it doesn't end slowly; it ends quickly when when the cycle ends for, for growth stocks. When when the cycle ends for expensive growth. Yeah, uh, Jason and Mike. Uh, Maybe a question for both. What are your thoughts on inflation? Are we in a, a hot flash of inflation because of base effects? Or do you think we're entering into a period of structural inflation? I can start with that. Um, I think the answer is yes. <laughs> so we, are, we have no question we have a bout of, of short-term supply-driven inflation. Lumber is a perfect example. Yeah. Uh, it's not that we have a lack of trees. We have a, a lack of throughput for, for lumber. Um, and as you know, nothing solves prices, high prices like high prices, right? That, that will be the cure. And you see West Fraser as an example, putting $150 million into a U.S. mill to get that up and running. There will be all kinds of mill capability in, in, in the near term. And that's part of why lumber's down six days in a row. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, there have been some large, uh, not misallocations, but underinvestment in core commodity products like copper. And it's not as easy to, um, you know, flip open a, a, a mothball mill as it is to find and develop and permit a copper mine. So, so there are some structural 
problems and you've got the tailwind, presumably, of an infrastructure spend in the U.S. Um, I think the challenge, I think what central banks have finally figured out or governments have finally figured out is that central bank stimulus is deflationary, period. Uh, okay. it, it crushes the velocity of money, whereas fiscal spend has potentially the opposite impact. Uh, and now that we've gone down that COVID rabbit hole of, of allowing for fiscal spend without a whole lot of guilt, it's hard to turn that top off um, if you're a politician because it works really well. People like getting checks in their bank account. Who knew? Um, and that ultimately can be quite inflationary, we think. So, so it's a bit of both, right? I don't think there's a clean answer on that. I think the other thing is you've got to remember the Fed has already told you they are going to let inflation run hot. They would way rather err on the side of inflation than having to go to negative rates in a deflationary environment. That's what scares them to death. They know how to deal with inflation. They can let inflation run. But if you want to run at an average of 2% and you've run the last couple of years sub one, well, how long do you have to run at three or 4% for? Right? It could be a little, it could be longer than people think. Yeah. So, so I think the inflation trade is, is, Real in the sense that it's it'll it'll persist because of government policy, um, but some of what we're seeing is is certainly short term uh, supply driven that will get resolved. Excellent, Mike. In inflation, gosh, I hate macro <laughs> stuff. Um, I, I think another thing that's interesting that came out of this inflation uh, situation is obviously, as you said, the base rates, obviously, but. Um, I think I think the other thing you can read into this is that corporations uh, have been running as efficiently as possible, maximizing profits, minimizing costs. You know, the advent of just-in-time uh, inventory management. Well, you see what happens when one tiny thing goes wrong. Um, you, you're finding out what companies are not resilient. What what supply chains are not resilient, um, you know. Uh, it this you know if you look at Google or Amazon just as an example, they have whole divisions go into work and nobody really knows what they're doing. Um, they're just inventing and toiling and running mice on wheels and stuff. But they're actually running things for when weird stuff happens. And I think too many companies are running too close to the bone um, and they're not, you know, it always bothers me when um, the proverbial shit hits the fan and none of the Canadian banks are ready for it. Um, you know, they plan for it, but they don't do anything about it. I mean, I'm not the banks per se, but a lot of companies, when they finally have their big chance to do something, they're not ready to do it. Um, so, uh, you know, it's like the AT&T uh, discovery deal today. I mean, um, you know, why wasn't this done a year ago? To me, this feels like reactionary financial engineering as opposed to intellectual capital and invention. Um, uh, it's like companies that announce a stock split. Yeah. Gosh, I hate that stuff. It's just silliness. Um, so coming back to inflation, um, I think an inflation is a victim of our own maximization of profit seeking. And I think it Nobody carries inventories. Nobody oversupplies anything. If you do, you get penalized. There's all kinds of things. And then it didn't help when you had a, a deglobalization happening and trade wars happening. So, and then there's a trap on the other end is, is uh, 
what's going to happen to Americans and Canadians if interest rates go to six or seven percent to choke this off? So there, I think there's a bit of a trap here. So I'm not, I, I don't disagree that we can't see this run a little bit hotter, but I have a deep feeling that it's going to run higher, but not much higher. Okay. So, but then you have tools yeah, in your it's, toolbox it's a to play very with that. difficult thing. Different types of areas I can invest. Very difficult thing to raise those rates. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think when you when it deal when it comes to inflation, you gotta you gotta run it hot. They need to run it somewhat hot so that you can reduce the amount of debt that they have on the books because they're not going to do it by being austere. They're going to do it by inflating it away. But then you know, inflation is one of these weird things. As a as a South American who's seen plenty of inflation. It's one of those things that you control it, you control it, you control it, and then overnight you're up six thousand percent. So um, you know it can get away from you fairly quickly on both sides. So it, it's going to be an interesting time, and we're playing an interesting game now that the Fed has certainly taken away their ability to target something. Their, their what do they call it? The free float interest rate. So yeah, I, I think inflation is uh, is going to play whether it's inflation or deflation. It is going to be a very interesting next two years as we see Fed governments try to deal with that. Um, now, guys, I wanted to, to kind of take and it Rodrigo, back. And you grew up in, Rodrigo, you grew up in Peru, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we saw, I've said this in the podcast. And you saw that firsthand. The reason I got to Canada, I saw it firsthand. You're looking at, at the time, stores were setting their own food prices. They weren't going to the market to, to figure out what a plate of spaghetti costs, right? They were kind of, you know, personal heuristic and, and they were increasing their prices two, three times a day, trying to guess what inflation was going to be the next day based on just complete mistrust of the currency. And by the time I left Peru, so it was in six months, inflation went from 20%, where you were getting around 23% uh, interest rate in your bank to 7,200% without the banks actually increasing the, the rate of interest, right? So people were wiped out. My parents were wiped out. My grandfather, who had retired, sent a letter to everybody in our family saying, you'll never have to take care of me because I have the equivalent of a million dollars in, in Peruvian currency, had to go back to work. Uh, my next door neighbor had, he was going to be thrown out of his house for not being able to pay his mortgage. He had a massive debt. And then after that six-month period, he was able to pay off his loan, his Peruvian-denominated loan with a couple of hundred dollars uh, U.S., right? So you got your winners and your losers. So this, this thing can get out of hand very quickly. It was a six-month period. And then there was massive deflation after that. So it wasn't just hyperinflation. It was hyperinflation and hyperdeflation, which is always the case. There's two sides mm -hmm. to that coin, right? And, and look, it's, yeah. we're dealing with small-cap countries here. Like that, that's, that's the type of stuff that may not necessarily happen in a developed nation. But the U.S. and Canada went, went through similar things in the 70s. So it's not it, – U.S. dollar and the Canadian dollar went down. Like purchasing power went down 50 percent in six years during the 70s. Right, so these are real things. Just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean they're not going to happen. You just got to be prepared with, a, with an active and diversified portfolio in, in order to be able to, to deal with things that we may not have seen in our own careers in the developed markets. And to that point, this is one, one thing I want to ask both of you is, you know, there's something in common between all of us here is that we're active managers. And we're active managers in a world that is begging for indexation. And we've survived it. We've made it this far. Uh, what's wrong with us? And uh, don't answer that question. More importantly, let's start with you, Mike. Over the years, uh, has it become easier or tougher to, to 
sell your product, to, to be able to, to bring people into the fold as indexation became a real thing? Um, you know, and one step further, I mean, uh, back in 99, 2000, you know, TD Evergreen, not TD Evergreen, TD, uh, whatever it was called, the online trading was 999. Um, yep. Right. And all that stuff. I thought, oh, boy, you know, this it's over. Um, uh, the indexing is excellent. In fact, in my when I'm building my business in my email inbox, in my drafts, I have the world's cheapest ETF portfolio. And uh, I update it about every six months. It's amazing. I mean, it's down to like three basis points. It's a couple of Vanguard funds, a couple of uh, Schwab ETFs, and it covers international to real estate to commodities, everything. And uh, one of the Vanguard ones used to pay you to be in it because they lend your stock out, right? Mm -hmm. So I have that ready to go. And, you know, when they come down to fees and this and that and the other thing, uh, I said, oh, well, it sounds like we're not going to be able to work together. Um, here's, a, here's an email for you. And then they get it. And they're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Thanks. And then I said, you know, you can go to Simple. You can do this, do that, da, 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 da. The funny thing is, uh, it's weird, Rodrigo, but managing the risk, managing the emotions, um, also having good performance is important. But being able to manage that risk, manage those emotions, provide my other services, mm -hmm. um, they keep coming back. And I, I, I have to say I was always surprised how people still need help. Um, the pendulum of fear and greed is perpetual. And, um, you know, there's always two, two things I always get. Oh, you know, I could have, you know, in, in a year where I'm, you know, let's say, uh, you know, 2008, we were down 10%, which was actually, by the way, I go, I know you guys know this, that's pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. But you know, I had the, you always have that client says, Oh, I could have just bought a GIC. Well, yeah, I know you could have. Um, and then, and then the other one is that I started getting, thank God I have my opportunity portfolio, which has all the risky stuff in it. And that's half the reason I have that portfolio, quite frankly, is it funnels the conversation to, well, did you know, I do have a portfolio that owns zoom and Peloton and Tesla? Oh, you do. And the reason I do that is because it becomes, it's an unbelievable, uh, that's the greed. Um, I'll give you two another example. Just after Christmas, just after Thanksgiving, and usually a few times in the summer, I hear from my clients and they tell me about their children who are making a fortune in the stock market. <laughs> and it's usually Dogecoin, crypto, yeah. you know, online gaming, whatever it might be. So uh, for some reason, I've managed to fare off the, the challenge. Um, and it really comes back to what I said earlier is that, um, you know, look at the last last week, uh, the Kathy Woodstocks in one week were down, you know, 18% for a total combined sort of one and a half month decline of about 40. Um, well, guess what? That, that, that wakes up people pretty quickly that they got to think about risk and index funds don't provide any risk management whatsoever. Yeah, they don't. And, and I mean, it's it really we talk about the advisor alpha being a massive thing. So, look, you're you're managing active portfolios, as you said, sometimes you're ahead in one quarter, sometimes you're behind in a quarter. And what keeps you going is that advice and that trust that you establish with your clients. Right? So the advisor alpha to me has always been everything when it comes to being an active manager dealing with private wealth money in order to keep them invested long term. 
right? But but also, you know, Jason, I mean, we also, you know, we're both selling to advisors as well. I have a, a mutual fund in the U.S., an ETF that we self-advise for Horizon in Canada. When we are talking to advisors, I find it particularly difficult, number one, to get them to make some space for alternatives, and number two, to get them to make some space for quantitative alternatives. So what has your journey been like, and, um, and, and how are you finding that space now? Is it getting harder, better? It's, uh, it's gotten a lot better with the advent of liquid alts. Um, and I will say right off the bat, we tend not to sell ourselves as quantitative for exactly the reason you just said. Um, we really do focus on quantitative being something that means discipline, risk management uh, process. But even there, we focus on the outcome, not, not the process itself. Um, so we, we, don't, we don't position ourselves first and foremost as quant, even though that's really what we are. But we do absolutely talk about how we can um, replace something in their portfolio, like long-only bonds, which is a lot less likely to do what it used to do when rates went you know, down for 30 straight years. And I think more and more advisors are getting that. Uh, this you know, past six months has really started to clue them in to the fact that it's getting less and less likely that bonds are going to be a proper defensive allocation in the portfolio. And their use of alts is expanding as a result. So even though most of what we do is in equities, really we're replacing the bond part of the portfolio. And it's going from traditional 60-40 to 50-20-30. Um, when we're part of that 20, which is now alts. So liquid alts has made a huge difference. You know, when we, um, when we launched liquid alt, we had run offering memorandum funds. When we launched liquid alt, we were call it 300 million. We're now just shy of 900. Um, and that's, that's wow. been very much driven by liquid alt, prospectus, daily liquidity, easy to buy and sell, medium risk on, on risk platforms, uh, on dealer platforms. All, no paperwork, all those things make a world of difference. Um, and, you know, so, so yeah, it's gotten a lot easier. And I think the, the acceptance at the top level of banks from the, from the top level down is much, much higher. Not every bank's the same, but certainly banks like a TD or a Scotia or a Raymond James or a National Bank or a GMP, they're, they're quite, um, uh, they, they view alts as a key part of an advisor portfolio looking forward. And, and in some cases, we're actually uh, not mandating, but strongly suggesting that they have a minimum, at least a minimum allocation to these strategies that can be defensive. What do you think is the best thing you do to keep your clients' behavioral on side, uh, to keep them from making mistakes like selling, selling in a panic? Um. Well, it's, it comes back to what I'm actually already doing for them. I, it's a promise I've made, which I'll do it for them. I'll panic for them. Um, and I'll do it in a more rational way, if, if, you, yeah. if you will. Um, but the, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, uh, if I can dovetail into the previous conversation about alts from the view of an advisor quickly. Please. And Please. then also how it fits into what I do. Um, the first iteration of vaults in my, I, I had lots of alternatives at one point. And it comes back to where you're like playing a hockey game. And when you go to play hockey, you have to play within the rules of the game of hockey. Well, the alternative space or the hedge fund space was always two and 20, 
with all these gates and all these one-year hold lockups and all these forms, these scary forms. So it was a it was a it was a it was a club or a restaurant where they invented their own rules and you had to play mm -hmm. by them. Yeah. And it and in my opinion, it wasn't very democratic. It wasn't very client friendly. I, they they mean well and they wanted to do the right thing. It's just the structure bothered me. Um, and by the way, I'm not talking about you know I I met Jason day one and 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 I I, I invested day one with my own personal money. And the reason was, is they launched in what I thought was authentic, clean, relatively transparent, flexible, honest, reasonable fee. And I thought, okay, here we go. Here's the new wave of alts. Mm -hmm. And um, and as you mentioned, Jason, the new uh, liquid alts have actually made it much easier for, for people like me. There's no reason whatsoever. And I've been in talks with his team that that 60-40, that 40 side of the equation, um, which I've actually on my IPS brought down to all the way down to 25%. I just wrote it in saying, I just can't have 40% in bonds anymore. So we've got it down to 25, which, uh, which was a big move we did about nine months ago. Um, and I do plan on, you know, maybe I'll become, you know, uh, you know, 75, 10, 15, maybe I'll be 15 alts. I don't know. But Coming back, how do I people keep people involved, or how do I keep people living with the investments I have? And this is something that, when you look at when you look at Jason's fact sheets, you can see their top longs and their top shorts. And I, I've always believed. And remember, I deal with retail clients. I have some large corporations and what have you. But I'm a I'm a retail. I, my target audience is the retail group, not institutional. Um, people like a narrative. People like a story. And, you know, when it's funny, it's funny. I own Shopify, which has been bludgeoned in the last uh, six weeks. The good news is we've reduced the holding, but everybody in my, and I know it's overpriced. It's only about a 2% weighting in my portfolio now, but everybody believes in the Shopify story. So they weren't, they didn't care about Shopify being 20%. They were worried about other things being down, which I thought was kind of funny. And the reason is, is that again, people like a narrative, people, and this is one problem with most retail investors is they the old adage, you invest with what you know, you know, the old Peter Lynch, you know, went to the mall and looked where his family was shopping and then bought stocks that they saw in the mall, bought stocks you see in the medicine cabinet, whatever the case may be. The problem with that, obviously, is everybody leans too far to the side of the boat and it gets overowned and overpriced. And there's no, you know, there's no, uh, you know, there's no secret anymore. It, it, you know, that that surprise upside's kind of gone. Mm -hmm. So. Yes, I love the narratives. Narratives keep people very involved in loving their stocks. Um, if you just have a line item in a statement, um, XYZ fund, and it's down 22% from as high, you lose clients. Um, but if you have a portfolio of stocks that are down collectively 22%, somehow these tend to believe in it all still. Oh, mm -hmm. but it's Royal Bank, Mike. They're not going out of business. So... That's the old way I did it, but most importantly, Joseph, is that I do, I've made a promise to my clients that I can't do anything about the first five, six, seven percent of a decline in a portfolio, but I, I'll get pretty damn busy protecting the wall uh, when it gets down to minus eight, minus nine, minus ten. Um, you know, I'm not talking about individual positions here, I'm talking about the overall portfolio. So yeah. I hope that answers it. No, no, that does. What are what are some of your favorite resources for market intel where you inform your 
your your narratives? Um, good question. Um, it's funny, you know. You got you have you know you used to have uh, blogs bookmarked. Mm-hmm. Um, we can start with the basics. Obviously, of your in-house research. Um, RBC happens to have a very robust uh, uh, platform. We have other third-party manager uh, uh, research homes. You know, Thomas Lee of Fundstrat, yep. Veritas, Morningstar, yep. um, JP Morgan, RBC, what have you. That's fine, and it's um, it's kind of expected. But it's all the, you know, I've gone into more technical things. We have technical strategists that I follow. I've subscribed to some of my own stuff that I pay for. Um, so I just I grab it all, Joseph. But if I can make a comment on that, is uh, I remember, um, you know, you, you look back 15 years ago after the 09, you know, 2008-09, people tend to gravitate to what answers their scratches their itch. So if yeah. you're bearish or scared, you tend to latch on to the people that are bearish and scared. Uh, if you're a Pollyannish bull, you tend to read Kathy Wood or, you know, any of these big pie in the sky uh, blog posts, what have you. Yep. Um, I do my best to stay kind of agnostic and balanced. I try to read the negative and the positive of everything I'm doing. So um, I would argue I probably subscribe to too much now um, and I probably need to call it a bit. Um, but just staying involved in life, Joseph, is where I get my ideas from. Perfect. Jason, how about you? You know, I find, um, to be honest, Twitter is probably my number one source for uh, <laughs> these days for both research, news. But, you know, the, the challenge is if you want that to be true, curating your list of people that you follow, it's, it's, it's all about that. Okay. Um, but, but I, you know, I'll agree with Mike in that uh, I think it's really important not to have your own little echo chamber of just confirmation biases and views that that are exactly yours that's probably the worst way you can go about your, your research but for me it's it's really a, a broad mix of um, macro information uh, sort of quantitative research so like the real propeller head kind of mm-hmm. uh, deep work that uh, um, certainly someone like Adam Butler on the resolve team and in Rodrigo would be putting out um, so I'll, I'll follow a lot of that type of content. But then it's a lot of, you know, honestly, it's independent uh, styles of, of trading. I'll follow people who are day traders. I'll follow people who are more growth focused uh, in, in how they run money. I spend a lot of time these days following people who are paying close attention to what the options market and the volatility market is doing, because it really has become the, the tail that wags the dog in the short and medium term. And if you don't understand how dealers are positioned with their options books, are they short gamma? Are they long gamma? Are they having to hedge? Mm-hmm. Is there an expiration coming up? That informs a lot of the short-term moves. And maybe it doesn't matter, but it can reinforce or accelerate risk-on and risk-off moves. Um, and if that, if part of that process and your process is timing markets, then that's an important short-term driver to pay attention to. Um, so it, it really is a whole broad swath of, of resources. But honestly, I use Twitter as the filter for all of it, as the delivery source for all of it. Excellent. Good I stuff. I use Twitter as well. I love it. That's good. Thank you guys for sharing that. 
It's been a great conversation. A great conversation. First off, I wanted to share that with all of you. Um, it's been a great conversation. And uh, but before we sign off, um, I have one last question. And uh, we've been doing this, and uh, sort of want to continue it on. So it goes for both of you, and uh, you can both take whoever wants to go first. But the question goes like this: uh, Would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future? And I'll let uh, you guys decide on who wants to go first. I, I would. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of my most liberating things I ever did was not let the past dictate anything in my life. So, you know, whether that's a mistake or a triumph. So my answer is I'd love to live a week in the future. Excellent. Yeah, I, I have to say that's a uh, that's an easy one. It's got to be a week in the future. I, I feel like you know, given that, and Rodrigo alluded to this. Now he's back. He, he alluded yeah. to this uh, earlier in the conversation that as quants, all our all our lives are are spent looking at what what has happened in the in the past. So I I feel like you know, certainly from a from a market and investment perspective, um, but that obviously ties into just life and human history. I have, a, I have a relatively decent sense of, of how these cycles have played out over uh, the past. But of course, the, the giant pitfall for quant is that the future isn't the past. It may rhyme, it may feel similar, there may be consistent patterns, but the future is absolutely going to be different. So a week in the future would, uh, uh, and obviously not just from an investing perspective, but from a, uh, a, a personal curiosity perspective, a week in the future has got to be the one for me. Excellent. Thank you. That reminds me quickly of uh, Josh yeah. Brown, who I love, has, has such a great way with words. He was talking about, remember, uh, Back to the Future, Marty McFly gets the um, all the sports scores for the future. Mm -hmm. And then his nemesis ends up owning casinos and he's a billionaire. <laughs> but one of, the, one of the posts that I liked was... Uh, he talked about if you could get all of the U.S. economic data uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and he went on to say that even if you had it in front of you and you knew the economic data, it didn't necessarily mean you're going to be a right about what happens in the stock market. That's and right. uh, I, I strongly believe that. I mean, the most curious things happen with today's data that completely goes against what you think is going to happen in the future. So. Uh, coming back to what Jason says, yes, you want to correlate and extrapolate and all that. It's part of the process, but I wouldn't weight it too heavily um, mm -hmm. because the future is absolutely unknowable. Excellent. Fantastic. Rodrigo, uh, do you have anything to add? All right, well, Gemma, I trust you had an awesome conversation. No, I love those, uh, those answers. No worries. Apologies, I lost power here for a second. Um, yeah, Jason, Mike, awesome to get your knowledge and help everybody here up their game a little bit more. Um, is there anywhere that uh, we can find you, social media, website? What do you guys I got? actually uh, try to keep my social media presence real quiet. I'm a lurker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lurker. BNN occasionally at our website. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's it for me. Uh, my website, uh, LinkedIn. And Twitter, although it's not an official, uh, officially endorsed Twitter account, okay. um, 
my apologies. I've become a little angry with the lockdown, so uh, my Twitter tends to reflect a little bit of that anger. <laughs> um, but I still try to provide valuable information for investors, but who knows? Yeah, excellent. Uh, um, for me, guys, I listen. I, I, I just want to say I've had a blast. I, this is, uh, you know, this is all new for me. I'm usually behind the scenes. It's been a great conversation. Um, I want to thank Rodrigo for helping me and uh, taking me on this journey. Uh, and Mike and uh, Jason, thank you both. Uh, it's been a great, I had a great time and it's been fun. 